Greetings, outcast, free thinkers, narrative questioners, dot connectors, and genuinely open-minded and outright curious inhabitants of whatever realm we exist in at the moment. You are about to embark on another free first hour episode of The Notes. If you find yourself wanting to dig deeper and have the desire to join the conversation during our monthly Melt meetups, you might want to consider becoming a monthly subscriber. For as little as three lousy Babylon hokey pokey tokens per month, you can have access to full-length, early, and exclusive episodes. Just visit patreon.com slash themeltpodcast or click the link in the episode notes to set the process in motion. It's simple, painless, and very well might make you feel tingly inside. So without further ado, please enjoy the show! This is Hunter Muse. And this is Chris Snipes. And you are listening to The Melt. control narrative has been so embedded in our pop culture dialectic for the last 50 years that we can forget that it's an actual phenomenon. And this is how media can slowly and insidiously present an idea in a fantastical context repetitively over a period of time so that it becomes the stuff of abstract confabulation. However, Accounts of mind control projects and the things that they put their victims through do appear to be so out of the ordinary and so far afield from our usual points of reference that it can sound inconceivable and concocted. Mr. Merlin, you and your daughter have been brought here because I require your assistance. You can go to hell. Has she been prepared? Yes. Father. Proceed. Now you have no will. No desires but to please your masters. You will obey only those orders we give you. Yes. Take this knife and place it at the throat of the man who is your father. Mm-hmm. 
Michel! Mainstream attempts to address such subject matter only further fictionalizes it by presenting it as if it were a movie complete with theatrical narration, dramatically lit sets, and exaggerated dramatizations. In the wake of World War II, the U.S. government is engaged in a large number of secret medical experiments designed to help win the Cold War. Developing techniques for mind control to create a so-called Manchurian candidate. What is the extent of these brainwashing experiments? How did the CIA become involved in such far-reaching and disturbing research? These shows make sure to only tread well-worn narratives and never dare to get too close to the subject matter to keep it abstract and to leave plenty of wiggle room for plausibility to slip through. And then you come across someone like today's guest, Elisa E., and her testimony in regards to her personal experiences with such projects, and you get the opportunity to hear about these narratives within the context of someone's life. There is no glamour in recounting this stuff. This is attention that no one seeks to attract. Yet, it's important to have these conversations because they make us aware of what some human beings get up to when put into certain positions of power or become a compartmentalized cog in the machine of power and control. These conversations serve to shed light where it is desperately needed. I start off the conversation by asking Elisa how she first realized that she had been subject to mind control programming. Well, I knew nothing about mind control. As far as the formal, I knew nothing official. I'd never heard of MKUltra. I didn't have any of the language or terminologies, you know, to work with. Um, and memories just started showing up. And, and they actually occurred throughout my life. But then my alters would take over, the programming would take over, and it would just get all shut down and shoved down. Mm-hmm. And the things that did stay, the things that were uh, presented to my conscious self and my everyday consciousness uh, just had nowhere to, to fit. This, this couldn't be. Um, I had no way to explain it. So I knew I was different than other people. I knew it was uh, be cautious of what you talked about. Um, sure. I could see the difference. Uh, I could feel the difference. Um, I would watch people and think, try to figure out what they were feeling and what they were doing. Like I couldn't relate to what they were doing. It was all fascinating to me. Um, but you learn to be quiet. I mean, I mean, I tried as a young person to occasionally approach one of my parents, my mom in particular. I remember just a few things that I would try to tell her, mm-hmm. like that I could breathe underwater. <laughs> And, uh, you know, she just kind of downplayed everything. Um, And so I just, you know, through childhood, I learned and through teens, you just don't talk about this stuff. Sure. People will think you're crazy. And I really had no explanation for it. Mm -hmm. And so even in early adult years, when memories were surfacing, um, like being on a military base and being, um, being tortured, and hooked up and knowing that they were messing with my mind, my language was they're putting stuff in my head and taking it out. I didn't have, you know, I didn't have the understanding of um, this is a, a, an esoteric science and it's mind control. It was yeah. why on earth am I here? I might die here, but I don't think these people are trying to kill me. I have no idea what this is all about, mm-hmm. but I'm in, you know, tremendous danger. Sure. And so it was kind of that mindset when when a more conscious part of me would show up during 
either programming, torture, or even out on task. And for years, even on the, on task, what would happen, um, which I think I've really come to understand, um, I would be in the middle of something in alter, and then my true self would show up. And it was like, I would just stop and take everything in. And then I would go back into altar. And this happened quite a bit. And those were the things that were presented years later in deprogramming. And I really believe there was a, a very strong divine influence that was recording things for the future. Because there was going to be a time when I was going to need to know these things. It was going to have to surface. Um, so I would record it, but then it would go back down. And then years later, at the beginning at 46, is when I consider that I began what I call deep deprogramming, meaning I now had the knowledge that I was under mind control, this was real, and there were a bunch of other people just like me. Prior to that, about 12 or 15 years prior, I was still trying to get help, but I was still being used and still very much under programming. So it was like being bouncing in and out of lucidity and still missing tremendous amount of time, missing years in, in my history. Um, and um, But when when I finally met two guys who were ex-LDS, and they had worked with at least one, if not more, but one very intensely from, from Mormon programming, mm. um, used as a priestess, um, uh, among other things. And um, the day that I met them, I spent two days talking to them and um, I just, I said to them, just let me tell you what I know. And if, if you think I'm crazy, that's fine. Just, you know, um, and at the end of it, um, they looked me in the eye and said, not only do we believe you, but we've worked with people like you. And that was at age 46 and the floodgates opened. Mm -hmm. um, it was as if it was all of a sudden someone knew it was safe, it was real, and the altars started just downloading to me 24-7. Wow. It was rather overwhelming. Um, I actually call it flooding, and I think it's uh, not I think. I know it's part of the, the process to try to overwhelm the victim before they can get to anything that really matters. Um, so, yeah, it it. But it did occur throughout for me, mm -hmm. but it it did, just didn't last. It wouldn't. I couldn't hang on to it. Sure, that must have been very isolating. I mean, that's a lot to keep inside for such a long time. Yeah, uh, it is. And and then to have physical things show up, you know, wake up with a broken hand, and and you know, have a little voice in your head say how terribly wrong everything is. But but what? Yeah. You know, what, what's wrong? I mean, what is it, you know, and then try to, in my daily consciousness, remember what all that happened the night before and never really be able to and have flashes of things, just a moment that flashes. And it's like, no, that couldn't be, you know, but never being able to, to figure out, you know, at least at that time, mm -hmm. I did figure out why my hand was broken and how it got broken. But in the middle of it, it's it's pretty crazy making. God, I can only imagine. So I just wanted to ask you, when did you when do you think that the programming started? How old were you? Well, my um, my first memory is a preverbal infant, mm. um, and I actually relived that 
in deep, deep programming. Um, I'm even, I was laying on a bed in my adult body and even my body was moving arms and legs were moving like an infant mm -hmm. and, um, I couldn't breathe. My airway was blocked and I was as an infant trying to scream and there was no sound coming out and this would happen. And then I could breathe again and I was screaming and crying and then I couldn't breathe again. And after, at the end of it, I was dissociated. I remember just, I was laying on the bed, just focused on a spot on the ceiling as if I didn't really didn't exist. Hmm. So, um, but I do believe that it's even possible that it started in the womb. So I know that that's actually rather common, believe it or yeah. not. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that. Um, did, do you have any, um, inkling that maybe your your parents or your family has been subjected to this is there a lineage or did it seem to start with you i've never been able to engage them in that mm -hmm. um, i did have to finally leave like no contact i haven't talked to them since i think the last time was 2008 oh. um, i didn't leave in anger i kind of made this lame excuse of that i needed to go away for a while knowing that i was not going to be in contact again mm -hmm. Um, because I had been in, uh, in deprogramming already. And that particular year, that summer, I got a call from my mom. I think she was completely unaware of the things she was saying that were very triggering. And a, a call from one of my brothers um, trying to get me to come back, that they had created a room for me and, you know, come and live with us and, and that kind of thing. And I knew that um, it wasn't anything, you know, vicious on their part or anything. I don't think they had a clue what they were doing. Um, but I knew then that I was going to go down if, mm -hmm. if I didn't get out. And it's got to be one of the hardest things. I, I don't think there's a day that goes by that I don't think about them, the family. And I don't even know if, you know, my mother's still alive. Well, you know, where my brothers are. I've, I've, I've checked a few times to, you know, check in online and see if I can find them. Um, but they've known, I've had driver's licenses and bank accounts and addresses, and, and I know they could have reached out if, mm -hmm. if they wanted to. My feeling at this point is, uh, well, my father was a pedophile. Um, so, and I have Navy on both sides of the family, wow. mother and father. Mm -hmm. um, not as far as I know, not officers or intelligence, but enough. I know my, um, on my maternal side, um, I know he had some clearance. He wasn't an officer, but he had clearance because of some of the things he worked on in Puerto Rico. Um, and my dad is definitely a pedophile. I believe my mom had some, definitely had some programming and maybe even her own use. Um, I do have some disturbing memories, um, brief memories of her and I together, you know, meeting a plane on a tarmac, a small private plane and men getting off. Um, things like that and being in separate rooms and having sex, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, but I, I view it this way to have someone like me in a family environment, you have to control the environment sure. because if it's a healthy environment, somebody's going to say, wait a minute, what the hell's going on here? You yep. know? Um, so I can see, um, I can see there was a lot of trauma in my household and um, everybody was shut down and or acting out in a way that to cover what was going on. But I believe there had to be 
there were signs that um, I've never proven that they were programmed, but there were signs like when my brother was, oldest brother was 12, he lived in New Jersey. He drew an underground base. He drew, you know, with pencil on a big piece of paper, he this all these tunnels and soldiers and, you know, where does that come from? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So I don't, I never got to the story with them because uh, we couldn't get hardly anywhere. We barely could get past the incest, you know, well, we couldn't, they wouldn't, wouldn't really talk to me about that either. So, um, and the rest of it, I, at the time that I was in contact, I didn't understand enough of it to go beyond that, but I don't think I could have ever gotten beyond, beyond the incest mm-hmm. and the alcoholism and the abuse. So, yeah, it seems like there's, there, there was so much just going on on the surface that even to break through that into something deeper and very right. much darker. Yeah. That's just out of the realm of, I mean, if they can't deal with the surface stuff, they're certainly not going to be able be able to deal right. with anything deeper than that. And I, I was in sexual relationship, not only with my dad, but my oldest brother. So, and I mean, you, think- you know, there's something, what, what instigated him at 12 to engage with me? Yeah. You know, where did that come from? Just, he was, you know, uh, stimulated. I don't think so. I think mm-hmm. you have to have some kind of example. And I do have some, I don't know if they're valid or, I mean, as far as actual memories, um, I've had some pretty disturbing, um, we'll call them dreams about, you know, different members of my family and dead people and getting rid of a body or, you know, and I honestly don't know if those actually took place or they were, you know, a surfacing actual memory or if it was just off of all the, the insanity that was going on. So, so a lot of that has just been left as a big question. Yeah. Who do you think was responsible for doing the actual programming and the, and the making of altars? Was it a, a handler? Was it a... I mean, did you ever get to the root of where this was coming from? Not any particular names. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, I don't even have a face like uh, some of the memories. It's like I know there's men standing next to me in in khakis, um, but I don't have a face. I was also drugged. Um, A lot of it is, is kind of foggy and blurry, but I'm absolutely certain where it started with O and I, with, um, the naval intelligence. I think they're huge. I know they are. They're huge in this. Mm-hmm. And that I have a, a memory at three years old that of several guys that are dressed in what what I know as navy denims, which I know my dad had a pair of those. Um, so um, yeah, oh, and I I know I was utilized by a bunch of different people, but I don't know if they were the ones that did the hands-on. Mm-hmm you know, different groups and so forth, intelligence, military. I mean, I was on an Air Force base. I, I have memories of, of naval intelligence um, or Navy. Um, and then various religious institutions, um, individuals. And, um, and I believe it even went corporate. I believe it was literally, um, you know, you could be farmed out for this kind of stuff. Sure. Sold, basically. Rented. So you mentioned that your mother had, uh, she came from military background uh, and your father did as well. My, my dad was in the Navy and I think what happened there, I don't think he was anything special in the Navy. I think they did a psyche valve 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> they saw what was going on there. I think that's how they pick a lot of people. Yeah. And then on my mother's side, her brother was, um, was like I said, had some clearance. He was doing some stuff in the mid sixties in Puerto Rico that on a base that was, you know, real high security. Um, and her father was a subcontractor mm-hmm. to military up in New Jersey. So he wasn't military as far as I know, but he's, he did work for them. Do you know if, if uh, either side of the family had any Masonic connections at all? I don't know. I know my programmers did because mm-hmm. they put in some stuff that, you know, I discovered through altar memories being out on task and certain things that took place that I would discover um, in deprogramming that it was very Masonic setup as if a message was being sent. So as far as I know, actually, you know, now that you say that, <laughs> just like a very vague something with my, my mother's dad might have been in. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I think he was, I mean, I don't know that he was any, any high level or anything in, in that, but I think he was associated with one of the fraternities or yeah. How did your alters begin to make themselves known to you? Uh, <laughs> well, uh, besides the, you know, over the years, the things that what I'll call bleed through. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I do believe some of that was divinely inspired uh, by the truest part of me. But once the two guys, um, the two guys said, you know, we know what you're talking about. This is real. Um, they basically bombarded me um, internally. Um, uh, nighttime was incredible, but I also had uh, the entity aspect of uh, attempts at reprogramming throughout the night. Mm-hmm. Some of that, I believe, was being generated from altars within me. Um, that that was a pre-design to run things at night. Um, certain altars would kick off to maintain the programming. But basically, um, I felt flooded by altar memories um, in the beginning. Of, of deep deep programming it seemed like it was mostly child altars um, and then it would grow into going into adult altars um, I, I gotta say this I, I I wrote about this I really believe that they design how the deep programming is going to happen mm-hmm. um, as if you start moving towards something it kicks off something that was put in as a, a safe a safety. Yeah, And the way I would kind of just generalize it was that the child altars came out with like fierceness Frost. It was just, it was overwhelming and it was devastating. Um, a lot of them were very sexually pro- programmed. Um, most of them were just fragments. There weren't any that could even understand the world around me, uh, let alone try to function in it. They just came up, did what they did and bam, they were gone. Um, And I realized that that was, it created a highly emotional, childlike presentation, and it made me look nuts. You know, it was really a great discrediting tool if if that's where it stopped. Mm. Um, Luckily, I was working with people who who knew that this was not, you know, something to be ignored. And it wasn't that, that the information those child alters had was unimportant. It was very important. But it was like it was the beginning to try to take me down so that I wouldn't get to some of the other stuff. 
that was deeper in. And, and that took a while. Um, you know, in the first year, it took a while to start getting into um, the adult altars, the kill altars, um, that stuff. And, and then that got pretty, pretty devastating, too. So um, I was really out of control with a lot of that, not meaning that they were going out and doing some stuff, but uh, it was so random and it would just push up at times. And I didn't know how to how to control it. And it was like I was I was coexisting with these altars for a period of time and then they would disappear. But there were some scary moments um, with some of the kill altars. And I believe that was uh, designed to try to take me out. Mm. I got too far in. Does it, has it, did it, I'm trying to figure out how to word this. Did your, your, your true self ever come to the surface in the middle of something that, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, um, uh, you mean in, as far as in deprogramming? Well, when in when you were in the middle of maybe when you were on task, let's say mm-hmm. that. Yes, and I believe it was the part that would come through, and there would wouldn't be like any tremendous fear or confusion. It would simply be literally like I was taking everything in. Mm-hmm. So it, it was a very um, uh, when those memories surfaced in deep deprogramming they're actually quite calm and very centered it was as if uh my true self was observing because this is going to be important later on for sure and then and then it just goes black which means you just go back into the altar that isn't sharing anything sure so what would happen in memories it's not like a movie like you've got the beginning the middle and the end mm-hmm. right. it'd be great if it happened that way but what you get is just get bombarded with a thousands of pieces, you know, just flashbacks or, um, so you might be out in the middle of something, but the beginning altar isn't going to show you anything. And then this one part shows you a piece and then bam, you're gone. Mm -hmm. And whatever happened, happened. Um, and that altar isn't telling either. But what I started to notice as I got stronger was I would get a piece and sometimes I could figure out where it went. So it wasn't as if I saw it or relived it, but it was as if um, several altars wanted out. They wanted to be done with this. Mm. Even some of the dark altars, I believe. I don't believe any of them really wanted to live this life. So it felt like they could be really cautious, even secretive. But at the same time, why are they showing me anything? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's kind of how it felt like everybody really didn't want to do this. Um, but this is all they may have known. And there weren't that many personalities. It was only a handful of personalities that could really function in the world if they were to take over and, mm-hmm. you know, I would have them for an entire day or something. They knew how to be in the world, but a lot of the, uh, especially the young ones were very fragmented and, um, they were definitely special purpose altars that mm-hmm. only certain people had access to them. So as a, as a child, when you were experiencing this sexual trauma, did you have any physical signs or, or symptoms of that? Other than being at times highly sexualized, 
I, I remember that part. Um, as far as, you know, like physical ailments and so forth, there were a few things that always had another explanation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I have flashes of things that as a child felt very shameful as an adult that I was so sexualized and um, had to relive that several times. And children do have orgasm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll tell you that right now. Um, so there were a lot of times that I had to relive that in adulthood where I was reaching or reaching orgasm. And it was definitely a child voice that was coming out, a small child, not a teenager or mm-hmm. so. Um, but during, no, that stuff was sequestered. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very rare. I mean, I had sensations around my father that were confusing, mm-hmm. um, I often feared him or was repulsed by him, but I didn't know why. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I, I had uh, kind of a similar experience. Um, I don't know. I, I'm still trying to kind of unpack all of the pieces of my childhood, but I had repeated yeast infections as a child. So did I. <laughs> yeah. many, many yeast infections. Um, I was told at one point, like I was a chronic masturbator from infancy. And I was told by my mother, which I always found this quite disturbing, that I masturbated to orgasm. And when I was in therapy, I asked, I was talking to my therapist about this. And my therapist said, how would she know? Mm. How would your mother Mm. know that? Mm -hmm. Uh, So you know, anytime I get into this space where I start to talk about um, child sexual trauma, it stirs up all of these emotions and a, a lot of shame, but um, confusion, because I think that the parents, uh, w- I guess where I'm always trying to land is who the fuck would do this to their kid? Who would put their child in this circumstance, in this situation? Like what type of a person would do that? And I think with the military, there is this aspect of mind control where people that are in the military feel obliged to follow orders. And so I I often wonder that, is this something that was mandated by someone in the military and you just did what you were told do you, do you have any thoughts about that? I, um, I see that with, you know, I have this thing about contracts and signing on and signing oaths and all this, um, you know, whether it's the military or uh, the music industry or Hollywood or intelligence agencies. Mm-hmm. I mean, they make, they all make you do this stuff. And yeah. I, I do believe there's a power behind it. As far as um, my personal experience I'm big on the spiritual side of this. Um, There's no question because I still in full consciousness can encounter, not in the physical, but literally visually encounter entities that have entered my space or, um, I mean, this is very real to me. This is as real as, you know, that aspect of it is as real as anything you can touch and, and, and feel in the, in the five senses. So, you know, I look at my father, I don't know what happened to him as a child. I know there was weird stuff there. I never met his mother. She had passed when I came along, but I was told that there was something 
you know, there was something weird going on there or had happened. It was like, it's like a big mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I believe that at more than I believe, I know this aspect of it, this aspect, I know that there are very, um, there are entities that are inimical to humanity and they can gain access and they do gain access. You know, um, I think we're all up against that all the time, personally. Mm -hmm. Um, But those that are um, uh, traumatized or tortured or betrayed or injured or, you know, they're more susceptible. And, and maybe like my father, I believe maybe he came in pretty, pretty messed up Mm. and it was easy access. And I do believe in the military that they, I think they've been doing this for a long time, probably since, well, I don't know, but you know, at least the sixties and seventies, if not earlier, that they can earlier, they can, um, they can size somebody up. They can see what the potentials are. They can see what the dysfunctions are and, and go at that. And, And I believe that, in part, that was they picked my dad out just by him being an enlisted man. Mm. Uh, whether you know whether that was putting him together with my mom, you know, and 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 bringing those two sides together. Sometimes I think it goes back that far mm-hmm. uh, because they were a very mismatched couple. Mm. Um, and I'm not the only uh, person that has talked about you know it looks as as we're deprogramming, it looks as if even parents were brought together mm-hmm. and they were, they, there was nothing else there, you know, sure. between them. Um, and very, very different and very dysfunctional, apparently from some of the things my mother told me, very dysfunctional right from the beginning before kids even came along. So mm-hmm. um, my dad had very, um, I believe my dad had multiple personalities for sure. There's no question to me that he was MPD. Where that began, I think it began before he even, you know, before I even came along or the military got involved. I think it maybe it's something they found in him already, just based on some things my mother told me, some experiences she had with him right after they got married. Mm-hmm. But then they stayed together, you know, and had us three kids. And, and my mom's got her own, um, you know, some of the things she shared with me over the years, she wouldn't get in, she would never go to this. And we really never even talked about the incest. Mm -hmm. Um, I mentioned something inappropriate one time and she was right on it. I mean, she, she knew it was there, but she had ways to protect herself. You know, when my brother and I were engaging, she would call out from the other side of the house. Mm -hmm. She would get plenty of notice before, you know, she showed up. So um, I think there's a variety of things that work. I think it, it depends when people come into the incarnation. I think they bring a lot of stuff with them or potentials. Um, there's the bloodline aspect. Um, and then to me, there's, you know, the first line of, of, of handler or controller really is the entity. And then you just got some person there that's doing the material physical aspect of it. But to me, the, the influence for that darkness is, is coming from, from other beings. Maybe there was some element of compromise in your parents' relationship, which is what, how they got thrown together, possibly, because it seemed like they were onto something if they started programming you in the womb. Yeah. Something must have already been in motion. Yeah. And, and I look at, you know, kind of the bloodline aspect a little bit, 
Um, mm. And I think my mom was imp important in that part. And then my dad as well, kind of, he brought more of the uh, Native American. She brought the Scott Irish. And that's quite a combination apparently that they, they desire. I mean, he wasn't like full-blown Native American or anything, but it was pretty strong in his family. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you speak of the altars as as almost as autonomous beings, um, which might be hard for some people to wrap their minds around since this is all taking place within you. Uh, and you've also mentioned entities have to do with these things too. Is Are you... Are your altars entities that you're temporarily housing that occupy you to do certain things, or are they very demarcated aspects of yourself that are there's such a, a strong boundary between them that they are literally autonomous beings? Um, they are for me the the entity aspect. Um, they're very you know I. I I think I, I get that that's a hard part for people to grasp that these are beings with very particular characteristics, abilities, um, intelligence levels, hierarchy levels. Um, like you, uh, there's even things I've encountered, whether it was something that was running an altar or just something I encountered very consciously. Um, I, I could sense even a difference in intelligence um, where, you know, you might have a more low level kind of gruff, rough, aggressive thing, or you might have another kind that's very, um, very clever, very, uh, you know, nonchalant, um, very charming, um, very seductive. Um, so for me, they're very, um, very delineated personalities and abilities. And absolutely, in mm -hmm. my case, entities were running the altars they were the handlers um and it's my contention and and i probably would get a lot of blowback on this but it's my contention and always has been that without the entities the programming wouldn't hold mm. it, you could do all you do to someone and without that aspect behind it i think it would fall flat on its face so, um, I mean, they, they even give certain altars uh, certain strength, um, capacities that I didn't have and I don't have mm -hmm. as, as my, my whole true self. Um, and I'm not the only one that has reported this. Um, one of my heroes was Russ Dizdar, who, um, very evangelical, born-again Christian, he was a pastor. He spent his whole life working with people. <laughs> who were uh, mind-controlled, satanically ritual abused, and multiple personalities with entities. And he witnessed things that I know are true that are fall outside of the norm of the physical. And, you know, some people would say, well, they just tapped a certain part of the brain and, um, you know, made that ability possible. But I know it goes farther than that. Um, I've seen... I saw in, in deep deep programming, I saw changes in me in a, in a conscious way, physical changes, sure. um, eye color, even yeah. face structure. Mm. Uh, in one case, I was so jacked up and triggered. Mm. And, um, and I walked by a mirror and literally had to stop and go back. And of course it had, had passed in that moment, but it wasn't even me that I saw in the mirror. Um, and it's not just the way I see an altar as I've been programmed to see an altar. 
Mm -hmm. There's actual changes. And I've had people years ago when I was younger, I was in my teens. And I remember a friend of my brother's doing a double take and saying, your eyes just changed color, you know? Um, so it's, that aspect is very real. And really that's, that's where I like to, that's really where I like to go because it's downplayed. Um, and a lot of, um, I respect, you know, anybody out there, telling their story, but I notice a difference, not as much anymore. More people are talking about it, but when I first came out, it was, it was very much downplayed, um, even denounced in some cases that it was not demonic or uh, that it was just to traumatize, to make you believe that it was. And I find that to be not true at all. Um, these are very real beings, um, and I still have the ability to interact with them, uh, not in any fearful way or not running an altar. The altars have all been uh, collectively basically subsumed, and I'm in charge. Um, there's very little that happens. At rare occasion, I'll feel a resonance of someone's programming. Mm. Uh, whether that's a, a slight desire or, um, and I just kind of smile, you know, and it goes away. It's um, so, so basically in deprogramming, what I had to do was eliminate the entity. Once that happened, all I was dealing with was just some programming mm. alter. And it might take a month or two or three to run that down where they didn't, they didn't feel the need anymore and and it could you know it could settle out it was gone mm. but with the entity there that that's almost impossible mm -hmm. it just you know you're up against an entity so that leads me to the question uh what your thoughts surrounding these entities are in relation to the military now do you do you opine that these entities are working in concert with the military or is the military somehow drawing some energy from some other frequency or some other um, space-time reality? What are your thoughts about that? Um, I see it as, you know, at the in any, whether it's military, intelligence, religious organizations, um, yeah, any of those organizations or institutions or groups, I believe you're only going to find that at the very highest levels, mm. I think very, very highest levels, meaning probably the people that you've never heard of are the ones that know they're the true black magicians. Sure. Um, and anything below that is just, uh, really no matter how, how high it's just a minion. <laughs> you know, I mean, I really, to me, any human that isn't at that le that high level is really expendable as far as the entities are concerned. Sure. You know, so like the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers, yeah, those guys aren't. You know, they're just front men. They're mm. nobodies. They just have been given the position and the power um, for their time here, um, and and these bloodline families. You know, it gets passed down. And if they if they pay homage and allegiance and they may know that there's entities involved, but they're not the ones performing, you know, the magic that needs to happen. 
Um, I believe those people, nobody knows them. Um, they might be living down the street from you in a very nonchalant house with an old pickup out front. You know, they have a different, whole different mindset. So, so it filters down and, and I believe there's just the influence there. And a, a deep dive into materialism keeps people from understanding that. Exactly. You know, um, if you don't have an inner life and, and a true grounding, then you're just going to go with it. You don't know. You yeah. don't know what's influencing. That's and of course, we all know now that, you know, they're, they're, they're putting that into the machine. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is remote technologies like nobody would believe. Yeah. the level they've reached but it's still esoteric it's still it's still entities riding the frequency and when i first started deep deep programming i had an altar that wanted to tell that shout it from the rooftop she would not stop saying they're riding the frequencies into all of us mm -hmm. and now i mean that's really that's really where the technology is you know mk ultra is in the machine there's a whole lot of frequencies going on out there. And I'm thinking of Ron Allen too. I know you know who he is. Yeah. I do. Yeah. yeah. Intense, intense stuff. And you know, I even everybody should read his book. Um, mm -hmm. just because they need to understand where we're at. And 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 I think even reading the book, I I think. The, the, the normal everyday consciousness still won't get where, where that really is, where right. he's really taking us. But um, even some of the stuff that, you know, uh, he's experiencing, I experienced to a degree and again, didn't have language. And I, I remember going to Alana, she's a good friend of mine and, mm -hmm. and explaining to her that what I called pulls P U L L S. And um, you know, I was adamant that I was in another body on the other end. Um, that it, this wasn't a typical astral experience where I'm just off in the astral um, and encountering beings or being reprogrammed. Um, so, and then there's a, a woman, gosh, what was her name? Deva out of Australia. And this was written up in the mid nineties and she's experiencing being pulled out and taken to a facility and programmed. And she had some Christian scientists that came in to uh, study her. And they wrote about it and they would, you know, integrate altars and she'd get pulled. They would sit there. She's sitting in the room and she'd come back in the morning and she'd have all these other altars. And she was claiming that she was interacting on the other side. All this stuff was happening. So it's, it's progressed from, you know, from the entity level, an entity can program anybody in the astral. I mean, that's, we go off into, you know, the super sensible at night and um, hopefully engage with our guide, our angel, or, you know, what, whatever you choose to call it, um, which is a regenerative nurturing interaction. Um, but now with the technologies, um, that astral time is deeply, and this has been going on for several decades, is deeply being affected across the board. Um, you don't have to be an MK Ultra victim, so to speak, just to have that interference now. Yeah, for sure. I hope I answered your question. I yeah, yeah, totally, and and more. Totally. Uh, did you have something that you wanted to comment? No, go ahead. Uh, what do uh, quote unquote aliens, alien abductions, and alien encounters have to do with all of this? Well, that's where I went first, and I believe that layer was put in in programming. 
mm -hmm. um, that I had these memories of these beings, a variety of beings. Um, and what I would say now is that these are, um, for me, these are non-physical beings and they fit more in the category of the demonic. Um, I, I think of them, I'm, I, I study Rudolf Steiner, who uh, explains so much of my oh, yeah. life. Oh, yeah. Honestly, I, I just can't even express. And I'm a novice student. I'm, I'm, I'm very much in the learning stage still and probably will be for several lifetimes. <laughs> <clears throat> but he, he explained, and, and other anthroposophists who have studied him have explained what, what a lot of these beings were. And I, I look at the aliens as um, what would be referred to as retarded elementals. Mm -hmm. Meaning they have been, um, I won't go into the why and how, but they have been basically captured into working for the dark ones, the ones that are working against humanity's proper evolution. And they've kind of been captured and um, they can be released. That's part of our job. Um, they can be released from that. Um, it's not a, necessarily an easy process, but so the greys and the Nordics and the, even the ships mm -hmm. um, that don't really completely manifest and stay physical, um, in my opinion, they're all elementals that have been um, captured by the dark side. Because none of, none of my alien experiences were uh, anything but a part of my programming mm -hmm. and reprogramming. Um, none of them, you know, I didn't acquiesce to that. I didn't invite that. It was, um, it was an invasion and not a good one. And over the years, I worked in a, a store that was a metaphysical store for a lot of years in early deprogramming. It was the only place I could get a job. And um, I would have these people come in that were, I guess what I would call new age. And, um, you know, they would tell me these stories and they were seeing this as all, you know, wonderful and light. And I would just, you know, kind of probe as they let me. And I would always get to a part where it wasn't, for them. you know, like we would get deeper into it and we would always get to this either terrifying or painful or, you know, um, some aspect. So it felt like, um, it, it feels like a very uh, luciferic energy um, that covers what's really taking place um you know what's really at the core of that so i'm not saying you know I'll, I'll caveat this i'm not saying that there isn't somewhere out there something that you know um that uh isn't inimical to humanity other than i there are many beings that are working with us and for us um but as far as what's coming in and, and taking place here. Um, I'm not buying the benevolent alien story. And you at one point uh, sort of dipped into the UFO community, including Stephen Greer, who's a big proponent of the benevolent alien story. What yes. can you tell us a little bit about your experiences with all of that? Um, well, I had the abduction memories um, and the so-called grays and um, quite a few, as a matter of fact, even back in childhood. Um, I believe some of it was just the demonic interacting with me um, because it had ac such access. 
some of it, I believe, were screen memories uh, of uh, one in, in the woods when I was six years old. And I believe it was actually a ritual. Um, and uh, a very painful, sodomizing, you know, extreme experience. Um, and a being would show up after. Uh, but as far as, as Greer goes, um, it's, it's my opinion um, that he's MKUltra and that he's doing his job. He's doing what he was designed to do. And that is to help bring in this, uh, this idea that these demonic malevolent entities are good guys. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, that's what I believe. I, I, I have written about him in my book. I had um, a couple altars that were programmed to him. Uh, one of them, I even call her Greer's girl because she seems completely devoted to him. And there's reasons why I came to that due to something that happened immediately prior to meeting the two men in Salt Lake that were ex-LDS that would help me. Um, I was triggered by watching Greer on a, a, a tape of VHS, mm -hmm. uh, which sent me straight up there to these guys. And there was a reason for all that. Um, but I also have an all, a kill altar that I believe was, um, she's replayed the, the kill program um, to him, which obviously never took place, thank God. But um, I, I went and saw him early on. He was speaking in Denver and I drove to see him. And uh, that was a very disturbing experience for me. Um, he, and, and I was convinced even just watching him at the presentation prior to him getting up on the stage that he had, it sure seemed to me like he had a barrage of handlers around him. He must have had five or six guys around him. Mm. Um, one of which, I guess I was looking at him <laughs> in a very strange way, uh, intensely. And I remember sitting in the audience, flipping between adoration and I wanted to kill him. Mm. Um, and they, one of the guys standing next to him, I looked up and was staring at me. And he leaned over and whispered into one of the other guy's ears and they they placed the guy at the end of my aisle. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think they were afraid that, you know, they might have a live one out there. <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, and, and some of his history, he wrote a book. I don't even know the title of it. I read it years ago. It just seems like he has some symptoms in his history, a twin sister who died, mm -hmm. um, uh, extreme poverty and suffering as a child. Um, so there were things that kind of validated that, that I, I believe he, he has his own programs going on. And, and to me, that's what he does, what he's doing, um, you know, taking people out and, and bringing all this, you know, there's no darkness there. There's no malevolence there, mm -hmm. taking people out into the desert and calling them in, mm -hmm. you know, um, yeah, yeah. I just don't see any, any real good coming out of what he does. And he has a, a, a Jeffrey Epstein connection. Which oh, I he does? Think, yes. I just recently heard that he was connected with Jeffrey Epstein. Which wow. I found fascinating. 
That is. I would love to hear more about that. I think you... he's in. I think he's uh, in Jeffrey Epstein's black book as a client. He's <laughs> in the client. Wow! Thank you for that. You know, every once in a while, somebody knows something and they tell me, and it's like, okay, validation. It's just getting bigger and, and broader. Wow. Yeah. In in his book, man. Yeah. Interesting. The first time I've heard that too. Uh, a term that you. And I, I don't know that I ever met him. I have mm -hmm. memories of him, but I'm not sure they weren't program memories. Um, you know, I, very explicit memories of him in certain altars, but I, I still to this day can't tell you because when you're under programming and in those situations, it's as real as anything. So I don't know if it was a physical experience or, or something else. Mm -hmm. A term that you mentioned in your book, which I, I found interesting, I never heard before, optogenetics. Could oh, you yes. tell us what that is? So they can now uh, switch on and off the biophotons inside of us. Um, so basically, they can turn you on and turn you off in certain respects from a distance. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is, uh, in my opinion, a very, very... Um, very big part of, of current mind control technologies. You know, the way I see it is um, what I went through, I think there will always be people that want to do it that way because they're sadists or whatever, psychopaths, sure. and they just enjoy it. But, you know, we're really at a time now where they don't have to do any hands-on. They can all do it remotely and they can pick you out of a crowd, run your, you know, neural pathways and get your brain frequencies and, and, you know, get it all, all down and decide who's, Ooh, that's a good one, you know, and, and go from there. It can all be done. I believe it can all be done remotely. There doesn't have to, you don't have to be taken to a facility unless, you know, they want to pull you astrally. Mm -hmm. Astral programming is huge for all of us, I think. Um, and it's a, and it's an incredible way to reinforce the programming that's already in. You can just reinforce all night long. So, which they did with, or do with Ron Allen. Yeah. Yeah. Bless his heart. Yeah. Such I a mean, sweet guy. Oh, and that's the other piece. You know, I, I've said to Alana, how does this guy stay, in, you know, he has ups and downs, but he stays in a positive, thank God for life. Yeah. Attitude. That's not an easy thing to do at all. No. So I think whoever he was before, they nailed him as soon as he came in. They took him the first 10 days of his life because they knew exactly. And this is what the left-hand brotherhoods do. They knew exactly who was coming. And I believe that's why he can still even maintain that attitude with what he's been under his whole life and is still under at 70 years old. Um, I believe, I believe those things really matter on the esoteric side, the occult side. They know who's coming before they get here. And I won't go into how they know, but I do actually have some of that information. Um, they have access to the other side through some very dark means. Some of which I believe I was used for mm. um, in the kill programming. Uh, violent death can lock a person into the earth realm. Sure. They don't get to move on and then they can contact through mediums 
those individuals and get information from the other side that keeps them kind of running ahead of the game on this side. And so um, I have absolutely no question whatsoever that they know when someone's coming in that could make a difference, that has a very amazing path, and they can grab them right from the beginning, as soon as they're born. And I believe that's what they did with Ron. I don't know who he was, but he was something. There was something he was going to do here. Mm-hmm. Well, you hear that uh, in between lives, people are sort of making a contract or making an agreement to go into a particular incarnation with a with a purpose, with a with a mission, or with something in mind. Um, so it makes you wonder, like, do these programs? know that and subvert it or is that indeed part of the mission to come in within the context of those programs and like ron does remain like you are remain a vibrant positive force of good i think it's both i think it works both ways in that um there's uh are you familiar with casper hauser yes okay so, you know, that's another story of what he was going to do and, and they had to grab him and, and oppress and suppress him, even physically. They wouldn't even let him. And when you understand in anthroposophy, the physical, the, the spiritual aspects of your physical development, mm-hmm. they even knew to do that, to, to curtail it. Yeah. Um, but they still couldn't take away. They had to kill him eventually. Mm-hmm. You know, um, because even when he got away from all that and they thought they'd taken care of everything, he started to, you know, the light started to shine again and, and they finally took him out. Um, but they know that if someone comes in, you can't just take them out right away because they'll just turn right around and incarnate yeah, again. Exactly. So you have to subject them to, uh, you know, as much of a horrific, uh, suppressive, oppressive life as possible. Um, so yeah, I think it works both ways. And I think that sometimes, um, in spite of what they do, that, you know, that divine spark is stronger. I mean, there's no question to me in, in, in Steiner language, the Christ impulse is the strongest thing there is, mm-hmm. but we're, our consciousness isn't in a place where we're, uh, activating that where we're we're taking part in that in a way that eventually i believe we will um but right now we're not and that's where the dark side has gained a lot of ground yeah i had an experience um in early deprogramming and it was in the astral um first it started in the physical uh it was in taos staying in a casita i'd been out with some friends that evening and came back and i hadn't let it left any lights on and I was still in a lot of fear then. And I came in and, and there, there was the, the being on my left, you know, not physically, but it, if you turn to look, they could disappear, but I could see him fully and he be- with me all evening. Kane. Yeah. Kane. Yeah. That's what I called Kane. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, but it was very uh, reptilian like in this particular uh, presentation. And I had a whole physical episode with him before I was able to go off to sleep. And, and in the astral that night, my encounter with him was my high self. 
And my high self said to him, face to face, uh, without any fear, without any, no anger, no, just that real clean, strong space that he had to, to leave this realm now. That um, meaning him and all of what they're doing, it was time for it to end. And um, that we, there's a we, are here to make that happen. This is the beginning of the ending for you guys. Not an annihilation or, you know, nothing like that. Just simply, you have to go. Um, you can't rule here anymore. And it was a very, um, you know, I was in my daily consciousness. I was in fear and terror most of the time and high, high anxiety. But in this space, um, I had quite a few experiences in early deprogramming in the astral where I was in my, I guess what I call my highest self. And I was either engaging them or um, in, a, in a strange way doing battle. Um, not necessarily, you know, physically, there were no swords or anything like that, but mm -hmm. there was a consciousness battle at night. And a lot of times it presented as them attacking me in some way or trying to gain entry or maintain entry or, um, and each time I was doing something, uh, I would wake up in the morning and I would remember the event, but if there were words spoken, I couldn't remember the words. Mm. It was as if it was belonged to another part of me that I, I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, maintain that in my daily consciousness. So a lot of times I would be saying mantras, to in the experience with them, but I could never tell you what it was in the morning. And even to this day, I can't tell you what it was I was saying. So <laughs> I have no idea. Now I'm, I'm training myself in this daytime consciousness and even at night to engage more consciously. And I can say certain prayers and so forth that I know are effective, but I had to learn that in my daily consciousness. Well, it's been an amazing conversation. Uh, we really, really appreciate you sitting down and taking the time to chat with us. Amazing stuff. Uh, is there anything that you would like to leave people with uh, at the end of this or any place that you'd like to direct them to your work or what you do? Well, I haven't been really good about um, tremendously updating my WordPress site, but there is ourlifebeyondmkilter.wordpress.com. And there's still a lot of free information on there. Um, mm -hmm. The collages, if you don't want to get the book, the collages can be viewed there in full color. Uh, there's 36 of them in the new new version. I, I did write the, the two books years ago. Um, what, 12 years ago? I don't know. Um, something like that, 10, 12 years ago. And they're now into one book. I self-published back then. Um, these are now in one book form with color collages. Yes. And a lot of updates um, mm -hmm. about, well, not only personal updates in my progress, but also about what's happening in the world. And I did get a publisher, which you probably know them. Yeah. The uh -huh. um, and so it's found at logosophiabooks.com. And I would, it's other places on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, but they get more money and I get more money if you yeah. buy it from them. So I really okay. want to support them. They're amazing people and they're not big publishers. Um, so, uh, I would say that, and I would just say, you know, this is the time 
to amidst what's we're in the middle of and what's coming. This is the time to really learn how to remain human in the fullest sense of the word. And it can be done. It can be done. And you've got to develop an inner life that um, is strong and uh, sincere and genuine in, in your everyday life. Um, that's, that's the key for all of us. Amen. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me on and thank you for what you guys do. Thank Absolutely. you. It was and an honor and a privilege to speak with you, Alana. Yes. Thank you so much for your time. Alisa. Oh, Alana, Alana, I've got Alana on the brain. <laughs> we're we're well, she's, not, she's right here somewhere. So. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And we will we'll definitely have to do it again, at least for the second book. But I have so many more questions and, and there's so much more to discuss. So if you would be open to it, we'd love to have you on again. Yes. Sure, I'd love that. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. We'd love to have you on with Alana. Oh yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. She's a wonderful, wonderful guest. And we had yes. her on with Ron and it was fantastic. We I really did listen her. to that show. Oh, cool. Yes. Yeah. He's um yeah. He's had a lot of trouble trying to, you know, get things going and get online and yeah. get people aware of his book and so forth. And mm -hmm. I do recommend that book as well. Very sure. much so. And you can find it. He self-published on Amazon. So I'll just throw that in there. because yeah. Yes. Yeah. I'll put the link on too. Just great. Yeah. Great. Okay. Thank All you, right. Lisa. Have a wonderful rest of your evening and I'll let you know when this uh, comes out. Great. Thanks. Okay. Take care. Send you many blessings. You as well. Thank you. This new setup. I'm still getting used to it. I know. I like it. You do? Yeah. Yeah. This light. I wish we could come up with an, an analog light or something. That's yeah. something. It was blinding me the whole show and I kind of have a very subtle headache. I looked at myself and I look like a soulless zombie. <laughs> anyway, fucking great conversation. Yeah. Yeah. That was fantastic. amazing. She's, she's amazing. I she really, is. I really enjoyed, I, I was a little bit nervous to be honest because I knew we were, you know, anytime we're going to talk to someone who's had some, serious trauma serious you know from childhood issues i get kind of freaked out because it triggers all of these my of my own shit and my own emotions surrounding my own shit and so i was a little bit freaked out to be totally candid um but she has such a a centered peaceful energy Absolutely. that to talk about these really horrific things she was able to do that in such a way that made it a, a really easy to engage yeah. with her oh yeah i mean reading the book uh, i've only gotten through the first book out of those two books and the two book combo that was just released on logo sophia and there's some hardcore very intense stuff there. Um, and knowing that she went through all of that uh, and maintains her sanity and groundedness and good spirits and positivity is fucking amazing. She's a warrior for sure. Yeah, I. it's funny because I just finished watching the uh, Mr. Robot series and when she was talking about altars i started to think of the 
uh, alters in the context of that show and uh, you know, compartmentalizing or um, what's the other word? Uh, uh, dissociating. Not dissociating. I'm looking, I'm thinking of the computer term uh, partitioning mm -hmm. off different parts of your psyche as a, a method of survival. It's so fascinating to hear you know, that terminology and then think back to the show and think, wow, that's probably what was happening in the show. This is another one of these shows that's, you know, showing you an aspect of uh, mind control programs and trauma being used in these programs as a way to uh, fracture people's psyches and their personalities. Yeah. Uh, I don't know because I didn't finish watching it, but um I believe what you say. I believe what you tell me. <laughs> That's what I'm telling you. And it happened. I've seen it. And I hardly got to any questions that I had because just the organic flow of the conversation um, was, I mean, it had a life of its own. So, and I forget, and it wasn't mentioned at least in the first book that I read, that she has a big uh, foundation in, in Steiner and anthroposophy and all of those teachings, which we've been dipping our toes into a lot. And I foresee continuing to do that more. So I think that had a lot to do with helping her to deal with all of this trauma and deprogramming and just realizing the nature of all this stuff and how you can awaken in in a, a situation as tough and as challenging as that and realize that you can do something about it. That it's not a foregone conclusion that you have to, you know, carry all of this stuff around in a way that keeps you from being your full potential or keeps you from being an awakened uh, person that keeps moving forward and is not just playing that past trauma as a loop and sort of using that as an excuse for, all of the things that you're putting off doing or facing or living up to uh, it's yeah. She's just pretty fucking incredible in that, in that sense. I, I think it's a generational thing uh, too. I think now that there is this, this um, almost like it just feels like there's this seeking out of um, excuses yeah. for inaction and lack of integrity and lack of um, engagement in life. And so I think part of the collective trauma that uh, people are experiencing in the population is really the, the whole raison d'etre is to incapacitate people where they they feel powerless and they they feel like they can't uh, do anything except for comply. Mm -hmm. And so when you speak to someone who's really experienced some serious shit and has come to the other side of it and is not bitter and angry or resentful or, you know, is, isn't going out on tri-state killing sprees, you know, or sending or killing themselves or sending anthrax to people in the mail or, you know, doing terrible things. You know, when you, 
see that it's like all right well here's someone who for all intents and purposes probably you know has a real reason to be pissed off and has gone to the other side of that and there's these other people who are maybe experiencing low levels of annoyance and calling that trauma and they don't really have the right necessarily to use those things as badges of honor you know it's it's just like there's such an imbalance there of people who really experienced some hardcore shit and people who, you know, broke a nail and had a bad day and think that the world is against them, you know? So I think there's so, so much courage to be uh, just observed when you are listening to her story. It's absolutely phenomenal. And I know that we barely, barely covered any details because there's so much there. You know, yeah. there's so, you know, every, you know, segment of her, of the interview, just 15 other questions popped into my head. For sure. But, you know, I just, I wanted to give her the opportunity to speak because that's what we're here to to do is to listen. But I just wanted to just engage with her we could have talked for another three hours easily we could have talked all night exactly you looked at me with a little concern there exactly. um <laughs> suffering is relative uh that is a given but i know what you mean um some people no matter what their suffering is can turn a molehill into a mountain or they're looking for things to be outraged by or something to confirm that indeed they are a victim of their circumstances and see i told you so i'm so oppressed or i'm so downtrodden or whatever um so i think it is generational i hope i know that pendulums swing back and forth from generation to generation and i'm looking for that pendulum to swing back hopefully it does so in this particular lifetime of mine um because it's overdue as far as i'm concerned it seems like the last 10 years have been half of my life uh, as far as that sort of attitude is concerned um it does make you feel uh like you've lived several lifetimes when you can look back in your past in your childhood or even in your adolescence and see how different things are in that regard and how um, just the general attitude of people uh, has changed so much and how self-centered many people have become uh, and how there is uh, seems to be less of a, a feeling of community, uh, not necessarily in a like, a local sense, but in the big human community sense. Um, it seems like this divide and conquer PSYOP has really been super successful in a lot of ways um, because many people have fallen for it. And the COVID thing was just the next, the next course in the meal uh, as far as that's concerned. Uh, so hopefully, I mean, hopefully these lessons will become so blatantly obvious that we can realize that uh, that's the that's the idea is that as long as we're infighting, then we don't look towards the things that really matter. Uh, we're caught up in in circles of mania, uh, thinking that that's what life is all about and justice and all of this shit. 
um, when there are much bigger things at hand. And one of them is realizing that we're all powerful individuals and that there are things in this reality and world and universe that we have no understanding of whatsoever. And we're fucking tiny and incredibly important at the same time. So perspective. All of that being said, the thing that comes to the surface for me is garage sales. And what I mean by that is that it's easy to see the world being fragmented and divisive and infighting if we just look at the world of social media or we just look at the world of news. But when you go to a garage sale and you see someone that does not stand on the same political spectrum or sphere as you do well you know you know because of the way they're dressed or the t-shirt they're wearing or whatever signal that they're giving you and you can engage with that person and talk to that person and be kind to that person and that person can be kind to you what you see is that those moments are the great equalizers and those that's what is real life is those exchanges it's not what the mesmerism of social media and the bifurcation of society is telling us is happening it's the engagement and the interactions you have with people on a day-to-day basis in those moments and my friend marianne had a garage sale a week ago Saturday and I went to that garage sale and there were people of every spectrum, age, race, political affiliation and everyone getting along. Everyone was happy. Everyone was being kind. And I just thought to myself, you know, this is real life. This is what's real. It's not this fear-mongering perspective that um, Telegram is telling me or, you know, these other sites are telling me. It's these moments that make life a real exchange. And I can sit and I can talk to someone who maybe I don't agree with at all politically, psychically, whatever, and we can still be humane and we can still speak to each other and be decent humans. And I think that's the thing that we have to remember because that's where truth is, is at garage sales. I see a gift book in your future (laughs) or a series of gift books, chicken soup for the garage sailor soul. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I mean, you, you, it's as simple as that. You're right. You're correct. Yeah. I, I mean, it's I mean, just, it, that's but that, life. It could be anything. That could be at the farmer's market or right. at the gas station. But right. I know what you're saying. Like, it's those face-to-face interactions from human to human. I mean, that's the problem. And that's why so many of my bumper stickers are anti-media is because media is the thing that's doing the hypnotizing. Um Potentially. So yeah. uh, if you believe that, if you fall under that hypnotize, hypnotization, then you start thinking that 
you know, we're all into these little subcategories and we should be man at each other. And there is, you know, oppressed races and so on and so forth. Um, whereas if you just get out and talk to your neighbors and, you know, hang out in your neighborhood and get out and interact with people, you realize that that may never, ever come into your day-to-day reality. Yeah. I mean, that's why I love to go to garage sales on the weekends that we've got the kids because it's not about getting the stuff. It's not, it's zero about getting this stuff. What it's about for me is engaging with that person who's having that sale or the other people are there listening to their conversations, having conversations with people, connecting with my community. And I think there's something so beautiful about that because what we're seeing is how the kids interact with their world too. It's not just interacting with their friends or interacting with um, their elders or people around them that they're used to being around. It's how they interact with the, the outside world and how gracious they are, how kind they are. Mm-hmm. And it's those moments where I'm like, this earth fucking rocks, <laughs> you know, this is, we live in a really pretty amazing time right now. And no, I don't need another photograph or another book but i want to give this person some exchange i want to have some exchange with them some bartering or some you know some little thing you know it's good it keeps us it keeps us human it keeps us humble yeah look at our bookshelves (laughs) (laughs) we do bring a few things home from garage sales <laughs> well and you you're volunteering at the library oh my god if you move out of the way you can see all the stacks of books on the bookshelf behind you too oh god you got a book problem it's a good problem to have it's better okay. than a heroin problem it's better than a liposuction problem it's better than i don't so smoke many weed anymore i used to have a weed problem and now i don't smoke weed and so now i've replaced it with books if we could build bookshelves out of bales of weed, weed yeah, then <laughs> maybe we'd have a place for it in our lives. Elisa, thank, thank you. you so much for wow. coming on. Yeah. Uh, you were incredible and I uh, can't wait for our next conversation. That's definitely going to happen. Um, thank you all for listening and lending your ear and your attention. Attention is a pretty valuable, magical thing. Um, lending it to this conversation. Hopefully you were able to get something fantastic out of it. I know that I certainly did for sure. Things that I had no idea I would get out of it. So yes, hopefully we pass that on to you. Mm -hmm. Um, Thank you so much. uh, Those of you who contribute your patronage to our humble little podcast, it is much appreciated. Puts me one step closer to being able to do this full time. I'm already envisioning what that looks like in my future. And you all are helping me to arrive there. It doesn't take very much. Yeah. Just takes a few people doing it. Um, what my vision is for our future is making a Rudolf Steiner film. That's what I would really, I really would, love to do. I would love to do that. I would love to. I, I have have a penchant for making and maybe that's not a word i i like i've always been a documentarian in one form or another throughout my life i was the kid who got out his little 
portable cassette player, put it in front of the TV, and I recorded TV programs, just the audio of it, like the Kiss Meets the Phantom special and Bob Newhart episodes. And uh, I was fascinated by being able to capture something and then never listen to it again. <laughs> um, but that later transformed to taking a boombox and recording me and my friends hanging out on a Saturday night and driving around and being goofy. Then eventually that turned into making documentaries, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, I just haven't had the time to do it, but I would love to apply that to the kinds of things that we talk to talk about here. Um, I, I think that would be incredible, uh, not to mention having more time to actually research things. I feel like We've been talking to other people about the research that they've done and the experiences that they've had, but I would like to have the time to be able to do that myself um, and bring something to the table instead of having a space where other people can bring things to the table too. So all of that's going to happen. And I thank you ahead of time for helping that to happen. So where can people reach us to give us Adelaide's? Is Adelaide's accolades? Accolades, <laughs> Adelaide's. That's something like a in a square dance mm -hmm. lingo or something. Adelaide is a place in Australia. It is. Mm -hmm. huh. Um, and it's hypnotism, not hypno hypnotization. <laughs> would that have worked in that statement? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It would have. Okay. Thank you. Keeping me on my toes. You can reach me at Hunter Hyphen Muse. I can reach you right here. ProtonMail.com. Uh, and me or the podcast in general at the Melt Podcast at ProtonMail.com. Um, go to our website. You can find everything Melt oriented there. Uh, pretty soon we will have every link to all of our socials and all of the stuff that we put our, all the pies we put our thumbs into uh, on the top of the website. So, Feel free to share episodes, share the podcast, tell your friends and family, whoever you think might benefit. We're here to benefit. So That's right. All right. Thank you all so much. Thank you. And remember to visit a local garage sale. Absolutely. Make it a point. Exactly. To hear the full-length version of this episode, get access to exclusive and early episodes, and participate in our monthly Zoom meetups for as little as $3 per month, just click the Patreon link in the episode notes or visit patreon.com slash themeltpodcast. Contributing financially will help to make this podcast my full-time gig that I can devote more time to and allow me to create more content. Other ways of contributing would be giving us a favorable review or rating wherever you get your podcasts, subscribing to us on YouTube, spreading the word wherever you and your tribe congregate, or just by sending us your positive thoughts and intentions. In a quantumly intertwined and holographic multiverse, these also go a long way. Thank you. <laughs>